I'm Julie Coleman. As you probably know, I'm here uh, as part of the worship team here at New Hope Chapel. We're going to be continuing our series this week on the uh, Gospel of Mark, which has been really excellent so far. We've named the series The Big Reveal because Mark is the earliest recording in the Bible of uh, the life of Jesus, where he revealed himself in his years on earth. So today we're going to be continuing in chapter 7. But before we begin, I just want to ask you a question. Have you ever asked God for something repeatedly and got nothing in return? Over and over you've asked him, didn't hear a thing. I've had a lot of times in my life like that, as you, I'm sure you have too. And one of the th- times it was the worst for me was the year that my mother was diagnosed with leukemia. And uh, it was terrible news. She was only 67, which is looking younger all the time. <laughs> um, and we were not, you know, ready to lose our mother yet. And it was a very, very horrible time. Um, but uh, the news went from bad to worse when we found out that she had the Philadelphia chromosome, which is an uncurable kind of leukemia. At least it was then. I don't know what the status is now. This was a while ago. <clears throat> so all they could do was really hold it off for a while. And eventually it would take her. Well, I knew, of course, that this was the biggest challenge I'd ever faced in my life. And I thought that as a Christian, I would be able to go through the grieving process differently than the rest of the world grieved. So I asked God. I cried out to him for comfort, for reassurance, for him to lift me up in his strength to be a discernible presence in my life as we went through the whole thing. But all I got was silence. It was agony. Well, today, we're going to be reading about a woman who begs Jesus for something over and over again. At first, he seems to ignore her. And then finally, he answers her with what seems like a pretty insulting comeback. It's one of those passages that makes people really uncomfortable. You know, I struggled with this story. It was actually the first chapter I wrote when I wrote my book on Jesus and women. And the reason I was writing the book was because I had been raised with the idea that women were class, second-class citizens in the church and that God did not deem them as important. And so I wanted to get to the bottom of it. I truly wanted to see what does God really think. And I wanted to find out for myself, so I thought I would look at Jesus Christ and how he dealt with women and that I could see God's heart in that. Um, but when I read the story at first... I did not find the warm, fuzzy Jesus I was looking for. So let's take a look at Mark. And it's only a few verses, Mark 7, 24 to 30. Jesus got up and went away from there to the region of Tor. And when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it. Yet he could not escape notice. But after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race. And she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first, for it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered and said to him, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. And he said to her, because of this answer, the demon has gone out of your daughter. And going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, the demon having left. See what I mean? Not so reassuring, girls, is it? Well, let's pray and ask God's help in this passage. Lord, this is a hard passage. We see Jesus talking to someone who's desperately asking for his help, and we wonder what in the world's going on in this conversation. 
But we know, God, that you are good. And we know that you care deeply about what we think of you and how we uh, love you. And so we would just ask, Lord, that you would help us to get to the bottom of the things that are said here. Help us to understand you, maybe in a new way, and that we can love you more and trust you more in those times when you choose to remain silent for our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. I thought uh, that was not so reassuring when I first opened it and read it for myself, as I said. But when I did, when I first started to study it, a whole different impression emerged for me, something that was really actually life-changing for me. So I'd like to take a few minutes of your time today and show you what I found. So I want you to note the first verse. Jesus got up and went away from there to the region of Tyre. That verb translated, he went, is actually a stronger verb than the one that's usually used when when uh, it's meant to say he meant. Uh, Mark uses it here to signal a very decisive departure. And when we look back at the context of this story, we can see why. So there was a big confrontation between Jesus and the Jewish leaders at this time, the Pharisees and the scribes. If you missed last week, Steve's message on that is online, and I'm going to be tapping into it just a little bit because he did a great job of explaining it to us. But the scribes and the Pharisees, they had criticized Jesus and his disciples for not ceremonially cleaning themselves of the contamination that they might have incurred at the marketplace before they ate. You see, dust from the Gentiles might inadvertently got on them, and if they didn't cleanse it off, then anything they touched and put in their mouth would make them unclean. That was the thought. Kind of like when I was a kid and somebody that nobody liked touched you and you got cooties. Same idea. So, but last week we also learned that they were not, that Jesus and his disciples were not breaking any of God's laws given at the same time as the Ten Commandments. All those laws, 613 of them. But he was ignoring an additional set of rules created by the Pharisees in between the Old and the New Testament. We call it the oral law because it hadn't been written down at that point until the second century, which is now called the Mishnah. So, but that was man writing, not God, not the Holy Spirit. So Jesus quoted a verse from the prophet Isaiah to them to make his argument against their accusation. And this is what God said to Isaiah. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Now he wrote that quite a long time, hundreds of years before the time of Jesus, but that was exactly what he was talking about. They were operating on false information. They thought that they could become unacceptable to God by being in contact with Gentile dust in the marketplace. But Jesus was assuring them this was not true, that mankind was unacceptable to God because of what was inside them and was not something you could wash off with water. The Pharisees were all worried about the outside, but God, as you know, looks at the heart. So, after that big confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees, he takes his disciples out of the country and brings them into where the Pharisees thought to be unclean territory, the land of the Gentiles. Now, of course, when I use the word Gentiles, it means anybody that wasn't Jewish, in case anybody's not clear. The Jewish leaders thought they and their land was unclean. They were contaminated. But those, of course, were the rules that they made up. Because if you read through the actual law that God gave to Moses, he commands Israel to show love and kindness 
to the Gentile, to the alien. Some of these are examples. And I was kind of surprised because I was looking through to say, well, what did God say about them anyway? And I looked and I thought, wow, he said this? The first one I found in Leviticus. And it says this, The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Here's another one. You probably remember this from the book of Ruth, where they would leave part of the harvest behind in the, the grain behind in the field. And this is what, a, a rule that God had given them. When you reap the harvest of the land, moreover, you shall not reap the very corners of your field, nor gather the gleaning of your harvest. You are to lead them for the needy, And the alien, I am the Lord your God. And then finally, another one, and there's lots more, but we don't have all day. God executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So show your love for the alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. Never in the law of God does God command rejection of the Gentiles. Those Jewish leaders that had been arguing with him we're dead wrong. So what does he do? He goes away there from the, to the region of Tyre. So this confrontation about clean and unclean, brings Jesus brings his disciples to Gentile territory. And if you take a look at this map, um, you can see that there are two cities that are in red, Tyre and Sidon, and those both are kind of grouped together in this area called Syria. So this was actually the, the, the part of the map that you're seeing, those two cities up on the coast. That was actually old Phoenicia. And so those are the people, the sailors that went and, and uh, sailed all around and did all the discoveries, made an alphabet, quite, a, quite an industrious people. And uh, the people there were descendants of those people. So that's why this woman is being identified as a Syro-Phoenician. She was Phoenician of descent and she lived in Syria. Does that make sense? So anyway, this is what we're talking about. We are out of Nazareth. Uh, Excuse me, not Nazareth. We're out of Israel. And you can see there's the Sea of Galilee. Down below it, off the map, is the um, Dead Sea. But up above that is where uh, Syria begins. And so Jesus actually took them to a foreign land. Now, the people of Tyre had a long history of antagonism toward Israel got to wonder why Jesus was bringing them to this city in particular. It was still fresh in every Jew's mind that 200 years earlier, the, Ty, uh, the people of Tyre had joined the Seleucid army against the Jews during the Maccabean Revolt. A Jewish historian of Jesus' time, his name is Josephus, you've probably heard of him, wrote that the inhabitants of Tyre were notoriously our bitterest of enemies. The city was also the center for paganism with its superstition, and it's false gods. Mark tells us that Jesus and his disciples tried to keep a low profile, trying to escape notice, slip in, and avoid attracting a crowd. But you can't keep news like this down. And the thing is, the people of Tyre already had heard about Jesus. Because way back in Mark 3, Mark tells us, a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea, and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. A great number of people heard all that he was doing, and came to him. They'd heard of him before, and now he's there with them. And you know what? When somebody's healing the sick, and he's making the blind see, and the deaf hear, and raising people from the dead, it's going to attract a crowd. But people in that land saw those kind of works not as something from God, but magic powers. 
there were plenty of people who were traveling around doing the same kinds of things, sort of, that Jesus was doing. People amazing them with their magic tricks and their sorcery. But the people that were watching didn't know that, that, that when Jesus did those things, it wasn't to amaze the crowds. It was to simply validate what he was teaching, to prove he had the power to forgive sins and speak God's words. So, Syrophoenician woman had heard of this guy, and sure enough, she heard he was there. After hearing of him, a woman whose daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. Now, I don't want you to miss one little detail. This is going to be important, actually, over the next couple of weeks. But Mark refers to the demon, her daughter, as an unclean spirit. It's a presence on the inside of her little girl that was defiling and contaminating. Very interesting, in light of Jesus' recent conversation with the Pharisees. And I want you to keep that in mind as we continue through the story. How did she approach Jesus? Well, she approached him with humility. And she threw herself at his mercy. And she began to beg him, casting out the, please cast the demon out of her daughter. The verb tense that Mark uses here that she, tells us that she kept repeating her request over and over. Now, it kind of reminds me of when we used to take a road trip when our kids were small. We would hear, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? <laughs> over and over. And I think maybe that's how she sounded to Jesus and his disciples. And then finally, Jesus answers her. But his answer is not what we would think he would give. He says this, Let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Is he calling her a dog? Okay, so first of all, let's remember this is a metaphor. <laughs> and a metaphor is taking a familiar object and comparing it with a, an idea, and you, you look at what they have in common, and uh, you, you use that. So he's not literally calling her a dog. He's comparing her to a dog. But uh, it was, uh, he was comparing the people of Israel to being children of a master's table and to the dogs waiting under the table for the leftovers. Would the woman have been insulted? Hard to say. Calling somebody a dog in the first century, at least to the, for the Jews, was not a compliment. But... The word that Jesus used here was for a specific kind of dog, not the normal dog word that you would use. It was like a lap dog, a well-loved family pet. Now, any Jew would have been horrified to be compared to a dog because they considered dogs to be associated with uncleanliness and not welcome into their homes. And I'll tell you what, I've had a few thoughts like that when my dog stopped at some horrific thing and started looking at it when we're taking a walk. But to a Gentile who kept dogs as beloved house pets. They did. Pass, the word would not have meant that same kind of connotation. If I compared anybody in my family to my dog, Sasha, nobody would be insulted because they know how much I love her. Well, it might be a little insulted. She's kind of quirky. Oh, okay. Note to self, don't tell Steve that. Okay, so what did Jesus mean then? What was he doing? Well, from the very beginning, all the way back from Genesis 12, when he first picked out Abraham and told him he was going to make him the father of a great nation that would be special to him and have a covenant with him uh, to be set apart from the rest of the races, um, he established an agreement that they would be his people, he would be their God. But what would be their purpose? He told them this. 
in Exodus after he had called them out of Egypt. He said, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And Isaiah said it like this, uh, that they would show God to the other nations and bring them to him. I will appoint you as a light to the nations. That was their job. That was their reason for being. So when God sent his Messiah, the promised one, to Jesus, to Israel, Jesus to Israel, it was more than just the Jews. Jesus was coming to save the whole world. I'm sure you remember John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And he gave his only begotten son and that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But while he came for the whole world, he came for the Jews first because God was still giving them the opportunity as his kingdom of priests, their purpose all along, to accept Jesus and then lead other nations to him for salvation. Paul said in Romans that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first, and also to the Gentiles. And Jesus knew the priority. He knew what the program was supposed to look like. He wasn't making some statement of exclusion to the woman. He was simply stating the fact, how it was predetermined how this all was going to go down. And that he was there for the Jews first. But you know what? She's desperate. And a desperate mother is not quickly deterred. Um, when I was a young teen growing up in Connecticut, there was an accident in a town very close to us, and a, a Volkswagen Beetle had rolled back and run over a child, and trapping him underneath. Now the mother, no great athlete or anything, lifted up the car onto two wheels so that people that were there at the scene could pull the child out from under the wheels. Now afterwards, when people interviewed her, she said, no, I don't know how I did it. There's lots of document cases of it. I looked it up on, on Wikipedia, so it must be true. But when a de- mother's desperate, she does what it takes at that moment. And I'm sure all the moms out there, and dads too, when you're a parent and your child's in trouble, you'll do what it takes. And at that moment, that was now for the Syrophoenician woman. Her daughter was possessed by an evil spirit who was out to destroy her. And she would humble herself, she would embarrass herself, she would do whatever it took to get this man to free her little girl. So she takes the metaphor that Jesus used and uses it back at him to state another truth. And this is what she says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. Now what did she mean by that? Well, there's two things I think that she might have meant by this statement, at least that I could see. The first is, I think she meant that God, with God, there's an abundant amount of goodness that could not be used up by one nation. She recognizes, of course, that the salvation of Jews would also mean blessing for the Gentiles in the long run. And she was right, because when Jesus returns to earth, Isaiah wrote this, Now it will come about on that in the last days in the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of mountains and will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. Daniel also prophesied, as many other prophets did, about Jesus coming again. And he says, And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nation, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. The Messiah promised to the Jews 
would be the salvation of the Gentiles as well. There was more than enough to go around. And the second thing that she might have meant that I could see is that the dogs would still be able to eat while the children were still at the table. You know, a few years back when my grandchildren were babies and toddlers, mealtime was kind of a messy affair. And our dog, Sasha, knew it. So she skulked around, waiting for someone to drop a morsel, licking the floor clean as she did. In fact, even now the children are school age, she still lurks around when they're at the kitchen table, still hoping for a few morsels they might leave, or purposely feed her, which I frown on, but it happens. The woman was ready to take the crumbs. Why? Because she believed a crumb from God would be more than enough to rescue her and her daughter, because God is that powerful. So how did Jesus respond to these two expressions from her? Because of this answer, he says, go, the demon has gone out of your daughter. And Mark tells us, and she went home and found her daughter demon-free, just as he promised. It's a great story. But we still need to answer the question, so what? How will this story make a difference in my life, in my relationship to God? Well, I want to go back to what about her answer really Jesus appreciated. I think it goes back to the moment she entered the door of that house. I think when she threw herself at Jesus' feet, the original word for that means to prostrate oneself before in homage or supplication. That's what she was doing. And you know what? When you're laying face down in front of somebody's foot, that's kind of a vulnerable position to put yourself in. So she was communicating respect and honor to him at the risk of her own vulnerability. Then she wouldn't be turned away until every single possibility of him getting him to help her happened. Everything Mark tells us screams to me desperation. Do you think she'd already tried other avenues? Of course she had. No no doubt every other miracle worker that was traveling around putting on shows for people had failed her. And now, here he is, his presence in her city. She'd heard what he'd done, and it was hope for the first time. So then why isn't Jesus more reassuring? What he said was not even very nice. What was going on here? Well, I think there's something deeper going on beyond the surface. I think that Jesus saw something that he always looked for in people that approached him. He saw belief he saw the fledgling beginnings of trust. But there was an issue that kept him from acting immediately. And this is what I think it was. Did she fully understand who he was? Would she walk away from a miracle thinking that he was just like the magicians, maybe a little better than the others she had seen who attracted a crowd? Was she holding on to some superstitious or pagan beliefs that would only be reinforced if an unknown miracle took place? You know what? I think she probably would have. So Jesus engages in dialogue with her. He begins where she started and purposefully moves her forward. I think Jesus was being intentionally provocative. I think he was working to draw out a profession of faith. He wants her to claim what's rightfully hers. He's giving her the opportunity to join him in the salvation that he offered by fully and uncompromisingly believing in him and understand that salvation comes through trust alone. Did she get it? 
think she did. You may have noticed that she called him Lord in her presence. Now, that's such a, not such an unusual title. It's all over the Gospels, people calling Jesus Lord. But in those times, the address could be used like we would sir now, but not in Mark. Because you know what? That word is used one time in Mark, and this is it. One time, setting her apart from other people is addressed to him. So I think he's signaling she has come to a new understanding about Jesus through the conversation. Now remember the question I asked you at the beginning of the message? If you've ever struggled when God didn't answer, respond to your request, why does he wait? Well, I think we can learn why from this story. I think that God meets us where we are, too, just like he did for her. He starts with what we know about him, and then he pushes us deeper because it's a bottomless pit. He's an eternal God. He calls us to persevere in faith when he's silent, not because he's a reluctant father who's slow to meet the needs of his people, but because he wants to move us into a deeper dependence on him and a deeper belief in his ability. And through the process, we will learn to trust him to accomplish far more, as the Bible says, than we can even ask or imagine. You know, it happened for me when my mother was dying. It was a long two years, and I cried buckets. And I listened for him and waited on him, and every once in a while I'd get a glimmer of him at work. One was in a nurse who came the night before she died with a warm washcloth and washed my face and held my hand. I'll never forget it. It was a wonderful thing. That, and I really felt the Lord had sent her to me because I was alone and destitute. So it did happen. But the silence lasted for quite a long time, long beyond her, her death. And I struggled with it a lot. But you know what happened? I finally started to think, I've got to find out if he was silent any other time in the Bible. And so I started studying the book of Job. And what I found in Job and how he, re- he interacted with Job and the things that came upon Job and then finally the end when he talks to Job and they get things straightened out. And I just think, you know what? God has been, me and Job, we have something in common here. God was silent for him too. And if he's silent for him and not silent for me, he's probably been silent for you at times. <clears throat> but what I did was learn that God is not exactly the God that I'd put in the box all those years that he was something beyond what I already knew, as he, as he told Job the same thing. So the better that we know him, the better is our ability to trust him. So he does. He takes us through times of desperation so that we have no other recourse but to throw ourselves prostrate at his feet, throw ourselves on his mercy, to acknowledge that our, our dependence on him and his great power, to understand his great love, just a little bit better. You know, the Apostle Paul had a very similar experience. <clears throat> in 2 Corinthians, he wrote, There was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. But then God delayed an answer, just like what he does with us. But it was worth it, because Paul tells us this. He has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I'll rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I'm well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distress, with persecutions and difficulties for Christ's sake. 
For when I am weak, then he is strong. Weakness, desperation, they're not a bad thing. Not if when we experience him, them, we throw ourselves down at Jesus' feet, just as the Syrophoenician woman did. You know, God may not answer our cries right away or in the way that we wish he would, but through the process, we can learn to rely on what we know is true about him, that he has a plan for those set of circumstances and for our lives in a very personal way. His great desire is for us to know him better. And as he takes us through the process, the better we know him, the better we'll be able to trust him. And he will use that conduit of faith to bless you by filling you with his power and his strength. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for being a God who can see beyond the moment. Thank you that the God of the universe is deeply interested in a personal relationship with us. But we're so very human and struggle to believe that when you delay an answer, help us to trust in your love and your goodness. Help us to throw ourselves in your mercy when we feel desperate and helpless. Give us the strength, God, to wait on you and trust you for it all. And as we dismiss this morning, Lord, we thank you for the food that we're about to share and for your blessings to us, especially in how you worked and provided during the fall festival yesterday. Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. Amen.